All right, we're wrapping up our series on finding hope um, uh, in every season. And today I'm, I'm circling back to the whole concept of freedom. And uh, freedom, I must say, is one of the, it's, it's a word that we, we, we dally around a fair bit in Christian life. Uh, I wonder sometimes whether we quite understand what it really means and, and what would be our experience of freedom. What do we understand freedom to be? Because in our culture, you, I could say, do you feel free? And we'll go, yes, I feel I can marry whoever I choose to. I can wear whatever I want to. I can buy a car. I can, all the choices we have in our life. And yet what's our experience of freedom? Considering the New Testament talks so much about it and we recognise that the New Testament is talking in the context of the old. So we're, we're free from the, from the, the bondage at, of having to perform well to find somehow find righteousness before God. We're free of that. And I'll talk more into that um, today. But what's your experience of freedom? For us in the West in 2023, if I, if I asked you, and I did in the morning uh, early service, what's your experience of freedom? Or can I f- first say who's had it, who is experiencing freedom? Who, who has a sense of freedom in their life? So four of us. And considering so much of the New Testament talks about freedom, um, I know everyone was, was holding their hand up in their, in their mind. I saw that hand. But if I could be so bold, what, what do you feel free from? What, what is your experience of freedom? Can I, maybe a few people just shout out, what are you free from? Violent crime. That's, that's more of a South Africa versus Australia thing. Um, the streets of Joburg and, and Hilborough. Are known for other things, but but fair enough. Free from free from violence and carjacking, um, <laughs> not being alone, fantastic. That's part of a church life. Yep. Burden, burden, free of burden. I'd love to drill down that with a workshop. But yep, fantastic. The past, free of the past, fantastic. Freedom to choose. So let's drill down on that one. Freedom to choose, because freedom to choose is a fascinating freedom to choose anything or freedom within constraint. So if I'm a parent of toddlers, I'm free physically to leave my kids in the car and go to exercise class. I'm free to do that. I wouldn't recommend it. It's not okay at any level, but it is physically possible to do that. So, but we wouldn't condone that, obviously. So freedom freedom to choose, and some of the other freedoms we've talked about, freedom is not total abandonment of constraint. Freedom has some common sense attached to it and some boundaries. So freedom becomes a fascinating. So if I went into our community and did a survey, as we did with the recent series, of what does freedom mean to you? And I I bumped into some people. Every person I spoke to would probably give me a different interpretation of what freedom means to them. But if I'm, a, if I'm a teenager or a young adult or someone who's still trying to find themselves in life, I'm struggling with identity, I'm trying to figure out what sort of appearance I'd like to have or should have, I might be struggling with this whole issue of, of gender. Um, there's all sorts of battles going on in people's minds. And so to them, the concept of freedom might be, well, I have the, I have the freedom to choose and become whoever, whatever I want. But is that freedom in the end? Where does that freedom lead? Where does that sense, that popularist, over-reduced concept of freedom, where does that lead us? Does it lead us into true freedom or does it lead us into a form of bondage? What is freedom? What is the freedom that Jesus promised 
when he said, the truth will set you free. And he who the Lord has set free is free indeed. What does that really mean? And so I'd love to just, I've, I've attacked this from many angles over the years, but this whole concept of freedom, because um, statistics within the, the Christian movement globally would say that all of us at, in, at some space in our life are experiencing the opposite of freedom. We, we're feeling quite hemmed in, in, in bondage, either to our old nature, to our, our, our past, um, our circumstances. We're not, our experience of freedom is not universal. And then and a good proportion of any Christian gathering, probably from 20 to 50%, will be experiencing a tangible, identifiable lockdown in the sense where they have no sense of freedom at all over their, their, their flesh, their old nature, their old habits, and so on. They might be addicted to alcohol, pornography, all, a whole range of things. And so that exists in this room. It's okay to be honest about this. This is the struggles that we all go through. And as we cycle through life, we revisit this journey into a newfound sense of freedom at a deeper level. And so freedom is an interesting concept and freedom without constraint is not necessarily a valid way to describe it. In Proverbs 29, 18, the writer says, where there is no revelation, and revelation there, you'll, you'll have possibly heard this verse uh, misused. There is a, a translation that, that says where, it, in, where there is no vision, the people perish, which is not necessarily a, a wrong translation. It's just in our culture. Um, if we're business oriented, we might say without a vision, um, the organisation fails. And even though that may be true, um, that's not what this verse is saying. The verse is saying where there is no revelation of the, of the law, where there is no understanding of God's morality of right and wrong, where there is no boundary of God's moral will, people cast off restraint. In other words, they just go free. I'm free, baby. I'm just out there doing whatever I want. Well, your freedom might be making someone else pay a price. And so we see in the biblical model that freedom operates best within a form. So there's, there's a boundary around freedom, that there's freedom found within the form. And in fact, the presence of the form, the presence of the boundary of, of morality is, is the basis on which true freedom can be found. So that's all very theoretical and happy, but what's it got to do with you? Well, let's, let's begin to drill down there. Because we're going to say, am I free from what? The Bible in the New Testament talks a lot about freedom, particularly in the sense of the law. We're free from having to gain acceptance or righteousness before God based on how well I perform against the moral framework of the law. We're free of that. So nothing that you can do will earn you a righteous standing before God. doesn't matter how hard you try, you're never going to be able to get above that bar. The bar was perfection, you'll never do it. So we're free of that. Thank God for that. But also, further than that, there's nothing that you can do, therefore, that would disqualify you. If there's nothing that can qualify you, there's nothing that can disqualify you because we're saved by faith. As long as we have faith, we're fine. But that liberty, that liberty, that sense of freedom is not a license to do anything that we want because freedom exists within the form. Galatians 5.13, and if you do have a Bible today, we're going to be dwelling in Galatians 5. But he says in verse 13, you are called to be free, don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. So you're given freedom, there's life for you to have, but that's not a license to go and do whatever we want. So that's a pretty clear model throughout Scripture. And the whole idea of our, our, our current culture and the way we're viewing freedom in this enlightened era that we're in is um, it is a license to do whatever. But, and, and the philosophers will write much about that. Um, 
the existentialism will, will, will try and justify the fact that, well, you exist, I am, therefore I do, or, and all this kind of thing, but which if you play that out means like there is no reason why, for example, I can't just go and murder as many people as I like because it, all it does is justify that I'm alive. There is no moral grid to it because I'm free to do that because there's no moral grid. You see where this goes. Freedom, freedom is not freedom when it's lacking constraint. So common sense uh, will come to play in there. So this populist view, and, and we're largely operating in pop culture out there. Social media is mostly about the popularist view of freedom. And this is what's bombarding our kids. Uh, it's, it's coming through in the media strong. We're now finding choice anxiety, as I've talked in other, other messages. Choice anxiety is real. People go, there's so much choice. I don't know what to do. I'm just freaking out. I don't know which decisions are right. One it's like the eBay experience. Which one of these things do I buy? And we get all locked down in that. But it also brings a lack of defined purpose. If anything is okay, if any direction's fine, if I'm free to do whatever I want, that lack of purpose and clarity brings futility and ultimately hopelessness, which can be one of the many reasons for ending in uh, a sense of depression and so on. But the other thing which is a rising factor um, for the generations coming up now is because we live in such a culture where there is so much freedom, so many choices before us, we tend to choose the path of least resistance, obviously. Who, who will choose a path that's more painful than the next? Unless you're a fitness junkie and it's the way you get to your goal. Most of us will see a barrier and we'll find the easiest way to get to the place where we want to be, whether it's wealth or, or whatever it is, we'll find the easy way. But the lack of resistance serves against us in that we don't form resilience because resistance creates resilience and the more we, we bypass the, the, ear, the things that form us to get stronger, the weaker we remain. Now, I had a few stories between services uh, where a bunch of us Gen Xers uh, and boomers were reflecting, you know, I left school when I was 13, you know, and, uh, and you know, I, was, I was a butcher's mate and I dug holes and I picked fruit and we were sharing war stories about how hard life was for us young guys at 13, 14, 15. And, um, but the resilience as the, as the world pushes back on you and you start getting treated. In my first workplace, I started my work life at 15. Well, I, I, was, I was a butcher's uh, guy at 13 so I could buy a push bike. I was just, so I, we all did that part-time sort of thing, you know. But then I, I left school early um, to pursue a trade and eventually became uh, engineering and management. So, but I started in the trade sort of game. And, and I remember, I don't know whether anyone can relate to this, but you were treated harshly. Uh, it was assumed you, you were the floor sweeping, oil licking, gasket scraping, tire changing gopher guy. And whatever was the hard job to do, the poor old apprentice copped that and that was life. And I literally got abused. I was verbally abused. And this was normative back then. You just had to toughen up. If you wanted a paycheck, there was no HR. You know, one guy, I remember, I just remember so clearly when I was about 18, this, this, this really rugged foreman I had, he was about six foot nine wide, you know, and he was an intimidating guy. And so he learned to get things done by sheer brute bullying. And he said, all these guys around, Pat, excuse the, the vernacular, but he, he said, you're not, a, you're not a mechanic's backside. He said, I stuck up for you. I said, you were. No one got that joke, but that was, you got that? He's, he, he said that people were saying I wasn't a motor mechanic's backside. There was another word for that uh, that started with a different letter. And he said that I was. And this was normal. So that, that was a good day, you know. And so we were literally 
verbally abused and it was perfectly fine. There was no recourse. There was no one you could go to to complain. That was life. And so you toughened up or you broke, you know. And funnily enough, few people seem to break. We all toughened up. And when you're 15, 16 and 17 in those formative years, it's amazing how that resilience that you grow through complete unjust situation. That was wrong. It's never right to be treated that way, but it, it, it forces you to toughen up. I was quite a sensitive little guy and, you know, I could go home and cry to mama, but she didn't want to listen either. She just said, toughen up. Life's going to be hard. Get used to it. If you want to get anywhere, everything's going to try and conspire to stop you getting there. So you'd better work hard. And that was Gen X. That was baby boomers. That was life back then. Does anyone relate to this at any level? Okay, there's, there's a few of us there. Now, if you're a Gen Z, it probably wasn't quite the same experience. And, and it's not unusual for a Gen Z to be still living at home in the age of 30. Um, we laugh, but that's, that's not unusual at all. Um, they, they, they leave school, 18 years, go straight to university. So they haven't finished their school life by the time they're 22, 23. Then, oh, let's, let's have a gap year from life, you know, and, and um, go on. I, I'm amazed. I'm impressed. I can't get angry because I'm too impressed. The, 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 the overseas trips that have managed to be had by 20-somethings. I think I would love to have had that life. I, I genuinely would. I, I haven't done that. Um, so in, in one aspect, I admire it. But, but in the other aspect, you can, you, you can tell it's not as common to have that hardcore resilience, that, that toughening up that we had to have as teenagers. But life does conspire to still come against them. They don't escape. It just happens when you get married and you have kids and a mortgage, then it just comes out like a ton of bricks in the 30s and it's just so very difficult for those who haven't been been pressed since a young age to then go, man, life life is life hurts. <laughs> it pushes back, and it does, and it always will. And so this lack of resistance um, means we we don't grow in in resilience. Um, so we have all these paths presented to us. I have, I look back at this and I go, I don't know what this has to do with freedom, other than the fact that <laughs> if we don't force our flesh to comply with the hardness of life, the resilience against that is going to come back at us at one point. But God, God offers us freedom and we're designed for freedom. Galatians 5.1 says, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. So he, set us, he has set us free for a further experience of freedom. It's for freedom that he set us free. So what that's saying is that we are rescued and ultimately we're going to be recruited into something new. The freedom takes us into somewhere else. There's a life beyond being set free. There's a life beyond saying I'm saved. There's a life beyond saying I've placed my faith in Christ. He's rescued me. There's a life beyond that because from that rescue comes recruitment. From that um, freedom comes followership and, and fruitfulness. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Now the Lord is spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So there's a, there's a con, conjoining of spirit and freedom. Where there is law, there is bondage. Where there is spirit, there is freedom. That which the law requires, the spirit enables. The law demands, the spirit gives. And so this whole difference between Old Testament and New Testament becomes a way of expressing what does it look like to be free of the constraints of the law and then beyond that, there's a further experience of freedom that goes beyond that even further. And so I'll just get the next slide up on the screen there just to explain this journey one more time. So we talk, we've, we've talked now for the last five weeks about this seasonal experience of formation that we go through inevitably in life 
And we continue to go through as we cycle around and go further and higher in an experience of all these things. And so the, the wilderness experience, the formative experience is that of faith and finding freedom, but that naturally goes from that to fruitfulness. And so this experience is not just one of, okay, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, check that box, I'm a card-carrying Christian. So now this is going somewhere. If I'm truly free, I'll be free to. I'll be free to be, free to do. There'll be something that will change. Ephesians 3, uh, 12 says, in Christ and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. So the freedom comes from the faith. And so inactive Christianity, unfruitful Christianity, is not what a normal discipleship experience would be. We're rescued consistently, but we're recruited out of that freedom. So let's look at what we're freed from. I'm, I'm getting all my f- tied up here today. We're freed from and we're freed to. So Galatians 5, Paul goes on in verse 18. And Galatians 5 is all about freedom from law because the, the, the Jewish Christians who had that incredible history of the law couldn't come to grips with the fact that the Gentiles could know salvation and freedom from God's Spirit without an understanding or adherence at any level to the law. It was very difficult for them to say that they have the Spirit just as we do. And we have all this history and we're we're tied up in knots about things like um, food sacrifice to idols and circumcision and, and Ten Commandments and all this sort of stuff. And they're saying, the Gentiles, that's us, we're not constrained by that. Many of us in the room, if we haven't been raised in church life, we came to faith without necessarily the huge sense of guilt that came from not meeting the performance requirements of the law. We just, I I never had that. I never felt guilty about my life pre-Christ because I didn't know. I had no conscience. I didn't care. I had no moral grid until someone explained to me that I'm saved and I can place my faith in Christ. So did I... Did I experience that then feel guilty afterwards? No, I never did. Guilt's just never been a huge part of my life. Maybe I just never did enough wrong, I don't know. But, but, and, it, and, and the early Christians were grappling with this fact as well that these people had a whole other experience of life and they just walk in. How easy was it? You know? And they go, no, they, they've got to stick to the law. And so it became a huge deal for them. So Paul in Galatians 5 is going right through this. Uh, verse 18, he says, but if you are led by the Spirit... You are not under the law. So, so he's tying the spirit to the new nature, the law and the flesh to the old nature. The acts of the flesh, the old nature, are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition. Sounds like the 80s, doesn't it? Dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Is he saying that people who once they've placed their faith in Christ, don't, that, that they slip up now and again? Is, is he saying they're not going to heaven? He's not actually saying that. If you understand the context of Galatians, particularly in, verse, in chapter 6, he says, look, everyone slips. Everyone, everyone has an error. We all make mistakes, but, but God won't be mocked, he goes on to say. Those who invest in this sort of life, who, who can live that sort of life that we just described, without repentance, without a sense of, of uh, uh, conviction about that, who can go on and not only slip but invest and commit to that lifestyle without a sense that the Spirit's leading me away in a completely different direction. If they're able to do that, he's saying, then they're probably not a Christian because the Spirit in, our, in us will, will 
compel us in a completely different direction. So he gives off that glorious list of just terrible things. So let's break that down a little bit um, so it helps us categorize what he's talking into there for our modern day. So in verse 19, he talks about sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. In other words, we're letting the desires, the unconstrained desires of our bodies, our flesh, redefine morality. So we're defining what's right and wrong based on what we want from the carnal lusts of our life, unaware that lust um, is something that we can tend to invest in and make it become that which it doesn't need to be necessarily. We aren't victims of our lusts. We don't have to be. We're free of that in Christ. So he's saying if, you know, if we let those desires define our moral grid and say, well, I'm com- I feel compelled in my, in my flesh to express myself in a certain way, therefore I need to redefine truth according to this reality rather than having my reality conform itself to what is true. He's saying this is going to lead us into all sorts of unconstrained chaos. The form of life is completely out and the flesh is unrestrained. And we know what this leads to. Uh, it's, it's, it's well known. It leads to sexual dysfunction, um, objectivity of, of people, rather than seeing uh, sexuality, which is a gift, an expression of love, it becomes a self-fulfilling objectivity of someone else to meet our needs and our lusts only. So it just breaks the whole thing down and turns it into something that it's not. He goes on. He says, on top of the sexual immorality in verse 20, idolatry and witchcraft. Now, we probably don't, most of us in this room today would probably not say, look, I'm, I'm big into adultery, uh, idolatry, um, certainly not into witchcraft. We think witchcraft, oh, there must be horoscopes, uh, Ouija boards, levitating, all that kind of stuff. Can be, but it can be much more subtle than that as well because idolatry is essentially bowing to any God, little g God, other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And while we would hesitate to say that we would ever do that, we know that there are things that we confer to or defer to before we do what we know God would have us do. For example, if God's calling me to be generous, I'll defer to my idol of materialism. Can I afford this? What will this, what will this cost me? Will I need to sell a car or, or not have as many coffees? That, our first response is, what will this cost me? That's deferring to an idol. And so in our, in our culture, idolatry is, is rampant, as it always has been. It's just that the idols tend to evolve over time. And so our idol, our, our biggest one in our current day is apparently comfort. Um, you know, God's calling me to the mission field, oh, but I'm going to lose a bit of sleep. I, I better not go that way. It can't be God's will because he knows I need my eight hours. You know? Or whatever our thing is about comfort, we defer to it. We, we say, well, how, how will that calling go against this other thing? Materialism is a huge one. Individualism, the, the worship of self, I'm before all things, uh, particularly in the emerging generations, that's becoming a much bigger one as we go on, individualism. And so what he's saying there is we can't let our culture, the idols of our culture, determine what the kingdom life looks like in our life. He goes on uh, the second half of that verse, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions and factions. You can't forget here he's talking to the church, quite possibly about the church. You think, how could that possibly happen? Well, a few of those adjectives I've heard some of us here use to describe their church experience that they've come from in the past. You know, dissension, selfish ambition, factions, we've all seen it. It all happens. And he's saying that shouldn't be so. 
That's what happens when a group of people come together and they allow their own desires, their own preferences, take preference over what God may want for the, for the greater body. And this is something that I've had to learn uh, in ministry, a very difficult one because most ministers are, have a little bit of a people-pleasing thing that we have to deal with. We want everyone just to be happy. But if we let everyone be happy, what we then do is constrain ourselves to the lowest common denominator of what makes people happy. And so we don't fulfil, we don't become all that we can be because we've reduced ourselves back to that which potentially our old nature says, this is what I insist on. It's got to be this way. It's got to look like this and got to do that. And if I don't like it, I'm going to leave. Well, if you're like that, it's okay. I can help you find 20 other churches in our area that will probably be just the way you want. You know, but we're not, we're not here because of that. I'm hoping that we, we build this fellowship and, I, and I'm sure we have. Our culture here is people matter more than those secondary issues. And that's what keeps us together. Because if, if we constrain ourselves to keeping a false peace based on people's preference, then we'll never do, we'll never become what the world out there needs us to become because we're too busy satisfying what we want us to become in here. And so this is going to challenge us. It's going gonna, it's gonna to cause us to put aside ourselves at times and say, we, we've got a higher goal here. A great leader once said to me that if you haven't offended someone, if you haven't offended people, Sometimes in, group, in groups of people, then you aren't guarding the culture. You aren't leading as you should. I, think, I don't want to offend anybody. But it just happens. And it's a bit like a John West ad. It's, it's a fish that we reject that makes John West the best kind of thing, you know. It's like, what am, what am I prepared to say no to? What are we prepared to say no to because of the greater yes? And, and the, the stakes out there are sky high for the greater yes. And so we need to... We need to be led by the Spirit in this. We need, as a fellowship, as individuals and together, we need to be guided by His Spirit. Put aside our own agenda sometimes to do that. So Paul goes on to contrast the flesh, the fleshy life with the spirit life. In the same sense, he's contrasting law and spirit. In, in 2 Corinthians 3, 17, he says, Now the Lord is spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So the Spirit of the Lord is here, there is freedom in you. You are free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is here today, there is freedom. There is no constraint on you having to perform. There is no right here for shame to exist because you may think you're not as good as the next guy. Imposter syndrome can't exist here. No perfect people are allowed in this room. So you don't have to act like you are one. It's okay. Freedom. And this is a massive New Testament theme. And the Spirit sets us free. And so Galatians 5, Paul, he defines his freedom. And it's fascinating how he defines freedom because he doesn't really talk about the law now. He says this experience of freedom that you've got, that I've got, it expresses itself in your own experience of God and life, but also in the experience with which you deal with the people around you. It's fascinating. Verse 22, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Some of us could probably sing that. You've learned this through Scripture in song. Um, against such there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. So there's no room in there for selfishness. There's no room in there to try and manipulate others because of what we want. It's I'm here for a different reason and I'm being guided. The only reason I can survive that is through the Spirit. So five of the nine relate to how we engage with each other. Four of them relate to our personal experience. And I hope you have a personal experience of freedom. I hope you know 
I hope you experience your life different from someone who hasn't got Christ in their life. I hope you're not constrained by the same jealousies, the same anger, the same resentment, the same disappointment with life. I hope you're free of that because that's, that's the truth that sets you free. And I hope your life is different because the Spirit lives within you. So we'll experience joy and peace, faithfulness, self-control. And self-control, interesting how Paul brings that back. If this, you are free, you are free to exercise self-control. So there's constraint there, self-imposed constraint, self-control. So the freedom has a form. If I'm being guided by the Spirit, I don't want to know about all the stuff that's going to leave me to death. And so I exercise self-control. But I'll treat others well. Love, forbearance. I love forbearance, uh, which means tolerance under provocation. Uh, I need forbearance from you. I really do. You, you put a microphone in front of a guy long enough, he's going to say something really dumb and really regret it. And I, I feel I do. Sometimes I, you know, sometimes I go away from a Sunday and someone will say, I can't believe you said that. And I'll think about it. I go, I can't believe I said that. Sometimes we just, things come out and you think, there wasn't enough thought going into that. We, you know, and people get offended unnecessarily. And we need, we need forbearance. I need forbearance from you and, and vice versa. We need to just go, I'm not, I'm, I need to be unoffendable because I trust Christ in you more than I'm going to allow myself to be offended by you and have that as the foundation on which we stand. That's the only way church can work. If we don't have that foundation, if we lack forbearance and kindness and goodness and gentleness, this thing will never work. Just shut the doors now. What good are we going to be to each other and to the world if we, if we can't live with forbearance where we're the unoffendable ones? We don't walk out of here and, well, I'm ticked off by that person or that person. You know, no, we, we assume the best. We look for the gold and we love one another based on that. It's an interesting description of freedom, isn't it? But that's what Paul's doing. This is what free, I'm free from offence. I can live without that stuff. I didn't find my purpose, true confessions, and I... I have nothing to hide I, I, and I, I think there's a valuable lesson I'm happy to share, but I was locked down in this stuff. I, I left church world about 20 years ago. I, I was weary of it. I was weary of the things that I was looking at because I'd stopped looking at the good things. I'd stopped looking at the Christ in people and all I could see was, was politics and, and pushiness and pizzazz and we're putting on a show. All the stuff I've heard so many of us say, I don't like that about church world these days. And I didn't like it either to the point where I'm done with church. And uh, it wasn't the church's problem. Was I right? I, pro- I probably was right. Everything, oh, I'm not an idiot. I, I, the things I saw, the things that we all see, they're real. But I was completely wrong all at the same time because I'd taken my eyes off Jesus and taken my eyes off the goodness that he put into people. The good stuff was there. I just couldn't see it anymore. And I was looking for the wrong. I was looking for the practices that we don't do well. The worship wasn't perfect that day. The lights were too bright. Someone put a smoke machine on, this guy over-preached or whatever. And we can find it all the time. And it distracts us from loving people, the reason why we're here. It distracts us if we take our eyes off what really, and I'd done that. And I was right, but I was no longer free. Because judgment always separates. Have you noticed that? If I'm judging someone, they're the last person I want to be around. And if I'm judging the church, they're the last people I want to be around. And so... That's what I did for a few months. I took some time between churches, you know. Um, but God dealt with me and thankful to my wife for this because Trish doesn't tolerate my nonsense very well at all. 
She said, you can go and get your act together some other time, but I'm going to church. I said, let me tell you about that church you're going to. I said, no, 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 no. And I was right. It was. It was all those things. She said, I'm not going for that. I'm going for God. I thought, oh, how do I argue that? Like, that's, that's low, you know. I'm, 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 I'm going for God. Okay, you go and enjoy that. Anyway, so um, the trouble is I, I, can't, I can't let my life, my wife, so I went with her on the second week, you know, and it was everything I said, it was everything I said. It was exactly like that. I said, there you go. But God started to deal with me and on a couple of levels. One was he began to deal with me. I realised my problem was, wasn't them. My problem was me. It was pride. It was put whatever description you want. It was judgment. It was unforgiveness. It was small thinking. It was all sorts of stuff. Whatever it was, I'd taken my eye off the ball and he started to convict me about that because I hadn't found my purpose and all I was worrying about was closed doors in life and why wasn't I becoming who I thought I could be? Why wasn't I doing what I should have done? My mind was on all that and I forgot that I should have been there to serve one person. And then I met Kate Taylor and a few of her friends, Dave, her, her husband, and three or four people. And they, there was no nonsense about them. There was no religiosity about them. They just loved God just like they do today. And you can't argue with that. I can argue with my wife, but I couldn't argue with them. I didn't know them well enough. They, you know, they were just... I went to a prayer meeting with them one day. This is just, I've got time for a sidetrack. Went to a prayer meeting, one of the interchurch prayer meetings. So I'd come from Pentecostalism, so I was full of the Spirit and ready to go, you know. I had it all going. And there was a bunch of Baptists and Uniting Church and Brethren, all like this crew, you know. And I walked in there with a, the chip the size of Mount Everest on my shoulder. I said, okay, let's pray with these backslidden denominational people, you know. And anyway, so Kate turns up and a friend and another friend, and I'm with that group. And I said something silly like, you guys, do we pray in the spirit here or how do we do this? You know, just cocky, just someone shut that man down. And they're, they're just looking at me and they're just going. Afterwards, I recognise it as a look of pity. <laughs> I thought at the time, I thought it was a look of, wow, he's somewhere where we're not. But later I realised it was pity. You poor guy. And they just said, can we, let's just pray. And so when they prayed, they weren't eyes down, hands together, oh, Jesus. It was face up, eyes open, shout at the top of your lungs all together. Oh, Jesus. And, and it's full of victory and they've got a shout and they're all talking together. I'm going, what's going on? What's going on? And I went home and I said to Trish, I went there wondering whether any of these people were Christians. I went home wondering whether I'm a Christian. And it was that, that was the moment that broke me. Between God dealing with me and those guys just being who they were, I realised I was so wrong. I'd taken my eye off the only ball that really mattered, people. And not people, This, the number doesn't matter as long as it's one, as long as there's one person that I can just be with and offer some value to their life just by being present and trying to add something into their life. And in that context, that was the context where, it, where that, that humility was allowed to come through and, and then God touched me hugely by, with the Holy Spirit one night and, and the instant response to that freedom was a call to being fruitful. I was rescued from myself and I was recruited immediately. Within weeks, I was in ministry. Whereas for years, I'd try, why are all the doors shut? Why isn't this thing working for me? God had to rescue me from myself before I was ever going to be fit to help rescue anyone else. And since that day, that's never been a big challenge. I, the temptation is to, is to go back into that old way of thinking, but between the Holy Spirit and my wife, it's never far away from going, just remember why you got into this thing. It's hard to tell the difference between the Holy Spirit and my wife sometimes. It's, uh, I tell you, you need, you need to be thankful for that woman. 
gets me on track. And so recruitment follows rescue. If you want freedom, if you want purpose in your life, it's going to come from being rescued, probably from yourself and finding a new layer of freedom. Whatever that would be, that might be in your work, it might be in church, it might be in all sorts of contexts, but when God rescues you, you can't help but be recruited for a kingdom cause. And I think the church needs to be rescued again and again. We all need it. It's not just like we were rescued yesterday or five years ago, today. Because if our experience of freedom hasn't resulted in our heart for the kingdom, in our heart for one person, then we need rescuing again. I need rescuing continually. We need to be recalibrated back and reminded that nothing on this earth besides Jesus matters anything close to people. And it doesn't need to be a lot of them. Just one of them will do. And what we can add to their life. You see it right through the Gospels. Jesus rescues a demon-possessed man. And what does he do? He just goes into his, in his community and, and preaches the gospel in his region. So when Jesus comes back, the place is just ripe for a revival. He was no one. He was discarded, recruited straight away. How did he qualify? Because he got rescued. That's it. A dishonest tax collector. The same day finds freedom and gives away half his wealth and he's recruited into the, the discipleship movement. I love the story in John 4, the woman at the well. She comes there in her worst moment, rejected by everyone, finds Jesus at the well, speaks into her heart. She goes straight back into a town, recruited to spread the gospel. Because you're only truly free when you're free to give, guys. You'll know you've found freedom when generosity without constraint comes upon your life. I wonder if you're open to freedom. I wonder if you need freedom. I wonder if you want freedom. Let's just pray into that. Let's pray. And as I was just coming before the Lord before today's message, I hadn't preached on it, but the word very much was we need freedom from our circumstances. People are feeling in bondage to the life they're living right now. The people around them perhaps, the relationships that they're in, their circumstances at work or at play. But you're feeling like life has hemmed you in. And I'm telling you that it's in that context that God does His best, best work because in that context, we're confronted and He won't, he won't let us go unless, unless we insist so much that we push beyond those constraints that He perhaps has put in there. The, the closed doors, the relationships. There are times when He hems us in and we feel that pressure and we don't like it, but we need to look at that and go, that is the time where He's doing His best work because it's in that context that we learn the lesson that the greatest power comes in serving those who we feel are against us, in serving those that are holding us back, in serving those that we feel frustrate us and giving the very best of our passion and the very best of our energy where we are because that's all that we can control. And there's something that happens in that context, in the middle of that difficulty, that frees us. See, it's hard not to love a wife or a husband that you're serving with the very best of who you are. It can turn your emotions around. It's hard not to love a church when you're given all the best of your energy and your gifting to serve God's purposes right there, regardless of anything being perfect or anything changing. God does something in your heart when you commit to the people He's committed to. Something in that dynamic opens incredible doors at the time where they're least needed to open anymore because you've found freedom right where you are. And so your choice for freedom may well be a choice to serve 
a choice to bless, a choice to be the person that, that Jesus would be in that scenario, not expecting the circumstances to change, not needing them to change because you're free. You're bigger than those circumstances. You're bigger on the inside. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. The truth of that sets you free. So you are free this morning. I pronounce freedom in this house for God's people to be free of offence, free of false constraint, free of judgment, free of shame and free of inhibition that we can sing, we can dance, we can proclaim. I am truly free. I am free indeed. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship. 